0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by WEPA, ensuring the future of federal workers for more than 75 years.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom
0: to you live.
2: Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today, we're gonna focus on public service with two people who served our country in significant ways, First, Bob Gates, former CIA director and defense secretary, who spent a half century in public service. And later in our program, we'll talk with Dr. Stephanie Tompkins, who's director
3: of DARPA.
2: But let's start with Secretary Gates. Welcome back to Washington Post Live, Mr. Secretary. Good to see you.
3: Thanks, David. It's great to see you.
2: So uh, Secretary Gates, you started working for the CIA back in 1966 while you were studying at Indiana University, you took a, a stint to serve in the Air Force, then came back to the CIA. Tell us what drew you to public service in the first place.
3: Well, I was at the Russian and East European Institute at Indiana University, uh, earning a master's degree, and um, and the CIA recruiter showed up on campus. That was back in the day when that was still possible. Uh, happily, we're back in uh, better days, but. Um, And tell you the truth, I met with the recruiter mainly as a lark uh, in the hope of getting a free trip to Washington, D.C. But when they actually offered me a job, uh, I think because I was uh, have been studying the Soviet Union and this was really at the height of the Cold War, um, I decided I would that I would try that for a while and perhaps do my bit um, in the Cold War, in the struggle against the Soviet Union. So. It really was an outgrowth of my academic focus. I thought I would teach in college, but uh, when the opportunity came to work for the agency, I, uh, I, I agreed to do that. I never really anticipated that it would be a career, uh, to tell you the truth, but uh, it was so interesting and they just kept offering me interesting jobs and all of a sudden uh, it was a quarter of a century later. So uh,
2: t- tell our audience, uh, the Cold War is, is now long past, thank, thank goodness. The motivation that you felt uh, as a young man isn't present in the same way. What would you say to young people uh, in terms of what would motivate them today uh, to, to think about a career in, in public service?
3: Well, the struggle for uh, democracy, particularly in the in the uh, foreign policy arena, the struggle for democracy uh, is still as important and and clearly is needed today as it was in the mid-1960s. And so uh, partly there is the idealistic aspect of, uh, first of all, how, how can I protect democracy here at home? How can I advance uh, democracy and human rights abroad? Uh, But there is also um, the other side of it is is the opportunity to serve this country and to advance our interests. You know, we've got a lot of division today, a lot of polarization, even paralysis. Um, But the fact is, um, you know, most people would not choose to live in any other country. And and so how do we protect our own interests? How do we how do we protect our own democracy? These are all idealistic reasons for going into public service, in addition to to the more personal aspect of it, that it's actually uh, just a very gratifying uh, and personally satisfying uh, way to spend part of your life. Let's talk about the CIA for a minute, where you spent so much
2: of your career. How do you think the agency has done in holding on to its public service ethos, and in particular, Mr. Secretary, I have to ask you what you felt when you heard President Trump and people around him uh, attack the CIA as part of a deep state that they were arguing people should be suspicious of. What would you say in response to that?
3: Well, you know, I've been through, uh, uh, I, like most career people at CIA, have been through many ups and downs, uh, the investigations of the mid-1970s, Uh, CIA has never, uh, uh, shall we say, gotten a great press uh, in this country, at least not in the last uh, 40 years or so. So most people who work for the agency are accustomed to uh, uh, those ups and downs in public perceptions. Uh, The truth is it never hurt our recruiting. And and, and what really mattered was, uh, in terms of morale, was whether or not what we were doing was valued. And and although we would get bad press and although there would be congressional investigations and so on, uh, the fact is most presidents found the agency and the work that it did, both the analytical work, uh, the espionage and what was going on around the world, as well as uh, the clandestine part and covert action to be of value. And as long as the president thinks what you're doing is important and of value, uh, then then sort of the external ups and downs. Uh, really are are less important.
2: And to people who worry about a deep state with, with the intelligence agencies
3: at the center of it, what's the Bob Gates answer? Well, Bob Gates answer is that I've been a part of those agencies for a long time and the notion that they could conspire uh, or collaborate with one another, um, uh, both within a single agency and between one agency and others, uh, is is laughable on its face. Uh, you know, as, as CIA director and then a Secretary of Defense, I heard a lot about uh, conspiracy theories and and so on and 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 I always thought it was uh, laughable because first of all, no one in Washington can keep a secret. If there was actually a conspiracy or some kind of deep state trying to program or plan something, the notion that it wouldn't leak is uh, is totally contrary to every experience of the last half a century. Uh, Either somebody would leak it because they didn't want to be a part of it or somebody would uh, think there was a lot of money in the, in in being able to write an article or a book about it. So I think uh, I, I I in fact wish that there were better collaboration and cooperation among uh, the agencies of the federal government and particularly those dealing with uh, uh, foreign threats and and uh, with domestic threats. The fact is. Now, one of the reasons for 9 11 was the absence of such collaboration between domestic and foreign policy agencies. I want to ask you about some questions in the news, which are the sorts
2: of things that people think about, young people think about when they're considering uh, working uh, for the government. Let's start with Afghanistan. You were Secretary of Defense for nearly five years of of that war. Uh, I remember traveling as a journalist with you. A bunch of times to Afghanistan. Um, remember your your comments. Uh, I want to ask you what you felt in August with the fall of the Ghani government, the Taliban taking over in Kabul, our like, somewhat chaotic retreat. Uh, you lived this war as, as 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 Secretary of Defense. What did you feel watching that?
3: Well, the particularly the events surrounding uh, the Kabul airport uh, really left me feeling pretty low. Um, um, I, you know, two different presidents, one Republican and one Democrat made the decision elected by the American people and they made the decision. It was time for the United States to leave. We can argue about whether leaving twenty five hundred or thirty five hundred or a few more soldiers uh in Kabul for a protra- or in Afghanistan for a protracted time uh, might or might not have been uh, the right policy for us to follow. But here you have two presidents of different parties that have made this decision. What was unnecessary, in my view, was the way it turned out. It didn't have to end that way. And beginning with President Trump's decision or his deal with the Taliban in February of 2020, The planning for an evacuation, not just of the Americans, but of the Afghans who had helped us should have begun right then uh, in terms of making contact with these people, getting their contact information, perhaps getting biometrics on them, uh, getting visas prepared, and then figuring out contingency plans where you could have multiple evacuation points so we weren't limited to the airport in Kabul. So there was a lot of time where planning should have taken place because it don't. T- it doesn't take great intelligence, just plain common sense, to understand that if we announce we are leaving altogether, and we're taking with us the maintenance, the logistics, and so on, all those capabilities uh, that had enabled the Afghan uh, military, the notion that 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 there would not be a that things would not go downhill. Uh, pretty quickly, I think, is naive. And and whether it took two weeks or two months or or a year, it was pretty clear the direction events were going to go in Afghanistan. And we should have prepared for that. And we had a lot of time to prepare for it under two different Listen, presidents. I, what a
2: question that's very much on our minds uh, this week um, is Russia and Russian troops poised on the border of Ukraine. Russia was an area of your specialization as a CIA analyst. You know Russia as well as anybody that I I talk to. What's your reading of the situation? What do you think Putin is up to? And do you think an actual Russian move into Ukraine is likely?
3: I think Putin loves keeping the West and the United States in a state of, uh, to, to quote from Mel Brooks, uh, high anxiety, uh, and and he loves us not knowing what he's going to do next. Uh, he loves us getting all ginned up and and uh, worrying and making lots of public statements about things where it's not clear what we would do even if they did act, uh, whether or not they will move into. Uh, 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 Eastern Ukraine, I think, I, you know, I I would be surprised because I think that would have significant consequences for Russia, particularly on the economic side. But uh, I know our military is very concerned about that presence of uh, of a hundred thousand uh, Russian soldiers on the border of Eastern Ukraine and the capabilities that they have and. And, and the Afghan army, about half the Afghan army is pretty forward deployed So about 50,000 people. And, the, and so army. A, the Ukrainian army, I'm sorry, and is forward deployed and a pinchers movement could uh, could do some serious damage there. So I think our military is very concerned if Putin did decide to act uh, what he would be able to do. Um, but I think he also sees this as a way of continuing to uh, gin up nationalism in Ukraine. He points to U.S. and British and other naval activity in the Black Sea and and the U.S. helping Ukraine and so on, and, and so uh, he uses this at home to try and justify both his repression at home and, and his be- behavior toward the West, and whether it's uh, going along with Belarusian leader uh, Lukashenko in terms of creating problems on the Polish border with refugees from Iraq and elsewhere, whether it's pressuring uh, the Baltic states, he, as I said at the outset, he likes to keep the West in a state of high anxiety about what he is trying to do, what he has up his sleeve. Uh, at the end of the day, though, um, he's a classic bully, and and we haven't quite figured out how to push back on him, and and how to make him understand that there are consequences uh, for him as well as for Russia uh, of his aggressive behavior, and and so I think I think the worry about uh, Ukraine is justified. Um, the question is whether he actually pulls the trigger, and. Frankly, I think a major military move into eastern Ukraine, that would I, I would say the odds are against that, but but I wouldn't bet a lot of money against it.
2: Really helpful. Again, no one whose who's judgment about this is is more useful than uh, Secretary Gates's. Let me ask you before we return directly to, to public service about another issue that young people think about, and that's the U.S. relationship with China. President Biden this week had a Zoom summit, if you will, with uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, I'm curious about whether you uh, are are worried that China under President Xi may move sooner rather than later to try to reunify uh, Taiwan. He said he doesn't want to do it by force, but he clearly is determined to do it. Is that something that you think we can address better than we're doing now?
3: Well, I think the likelihood of an actual full-scale invasion of Taiwan, uh, the odds of that are pretty low right now. First of all, the Chinese have a very limited amphibious capability. They've barely exercised it. This would be an operation sort of on the scale of D-Day. And and there are so many other tools that he has available to him to bring pressure on Taiwan that do not involve a high risk of war with either Taiwan or the United States or both and and by the way a large scale war would very likely bring in the Japanese the Australians and other countries as well so it wouldn't necessarily just be the United States but he has the cyber capabilities essentially to cripple Taiwan he has the ability economic ability to bring great pressure to bear because of the extensive economic connections between Taiwan and the mainland uh he has the ability to bring great economic pressure to bear if he wanted to be even more aggressive he could potentially seize one or more small taiwanese islands that are actually quite close to the chinese coast united states nor taiwan i suspect would go to war for either for for those but it would be what i call a nibbling strategy that would send a signal i'm coming or we're coming um but at very low risk of conflict, or if he wanted to be especially aggressive, he could impose some sort of a quarantine, a naval quarantine around Taiwan and dare the United States to break it. Uh, In other words, it would be the United States starting a conflict by challenging an economic blockade of Taiwan. So there are a number of tools short of an outright invasion uh, that Xi has available to him. And with the economic pressures that he's beginning to deal with at home, with the Olympics coming up and so on, I think a war, risking a major war is is pretty low on his priority list, but there are a lot of ways in which he can bring a lot of pressure to bear on Taiwan.
2: Let's go back to our, our main subject uh, today, and that's public service. As you said at the outset, uh, Mr. Secretary, it's a time of great uh, polarization uh, in our country, uh, Washington is unpopular to put it mildly uh, so in, in a sense it's it's a period when um, there's a disinclination uh, to, to come work for the government you've lived through other periods when there was similar that turn away from from government after the Vietnam War after Watergate we recovered from from those periods what do you see as the path back toward making Government service making Washington a more attractive idea for young people.
3: Well, I think the I think the message has to start at the top, David. Uh, you know, of the last ten presidents, uh, just two actually encouraged young people uh, to go into public service. Uh, President Kennedy's inaugural address, where he talked about, uh, "Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country." That inspired me. Uh, and then George H.W. Bush uh, and his consistent message that public service, as he put it, was a noble calling. Uh, Most other presidents have actually run against the very government that they want to lead. And so a message from the president that public service is important, that serving your country is important, and not just in the military. Uh, they, They often will say that, but in terms of the rest of the government, whether it's the State Department, the intelligence community, the domestic agencies, the law enforcement agencies, and so on. So the message is the message needs to come from the top. The same thing is true of members of Congress. Uh, when was the last time you heard a member of Congress talk about the importance of public service and of young people coming to serve um serve their country and their and their and their fellow citizens so i think the message needs to start at the top but i would also say uh that that the leaders of various agencies have the opportunity to uh to entice young people to come to work in those agencies by uh, by showing that they know these institutions need to change need to reform I'm a big advocate of institutions. I talked about that in another interview a while back. But all all government agencies need to reform. They all are in need of change and, and adaptation and becoming more efficient, better serving people. And that's a message that can be sent to young people saying, come be a part of this process. Come, come help us figure out how to serve the American people better. Uh, And I think that's a message of change and reform that come be a part of that. And and I think that uh, I think that's an enticing message rather than rather than uh, as as uh, my friend, uh, former Secretary of State Condi Rice would put it, uh, come stamp visas for three years. Uh, So I think I think uh, um, there are opportunities for young people. I think young people bring a lot of fresh ideas, a lot of energy. The sad thing is, David, right now, uh, only 6% of the federal workforce are under the age of 30. Nearly half of the workforce is over the age of 50. So something has to be done to change that demographic. And our leaders need to, our political leaders need to figure out a way on how you Uh, make public service uh, and a role in the government more attractive to young people. And I think one of the messages is the inspirational message, we can do this better, come be a part of it. So
2: let me just drill down on one uh, thing that I hear uh, from young people when uh, we're talking about about this issue, and that is that the rules uh, for Public servants can be so stringent, the, the scrutiny, sometimes the, uh, the humiliation, uh, that it's just not attractive uh, to, to some people. So the question I'm curious about is how do you hold public servants accountable to do the public's business and still make this an attractive area where people want to serve, think it's fun, don't think that they're going to have their lives raked over the coals?
3: Well, first of all, I think realistically that 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 kind of treatment, which I which I guarantee you, I know firsthand, uh, uh, really doesn't come along for quite some time in your career. I I I advise young people, you know, if that's the kind of thing that worries you for the first ten years of your career, you're not going to have to worry about that. Um, You're you're going to be doing hard work, whether you're in the military or the State Department or the intelligence community, you're going to you're going to be focused entirely on doing what it is that you wanted to do when you joined that organization Uh, and and the politics that take place outside of that environment. Uh, really are not going to directly affect you. I mean, it'll affect you when you read your Washington Post in the morning and it may affect your morale about what, what you're doing. But in terms of your personal life, until you become a relatively senior person, you're not going to end up in the newspapers. You're not going to end up in front of a congressional hearing. You know, it would be nice if uh, if Congress uh, would would treat the civil servants who come to testify in front of them, the senior civil servants and and public servants with a little more respect. Uh, But, you know, I I started testifying in front of Congress probably 35 years ago, and uh, there are some things that just don't change and you just get used to it and you do have to get something of a of a thick skin. But that, for young people, that's not going to be an issue for them, and they don't need to worry about that. What they need to focus on is what can I do to help. And the truth is, you know, a lot of young people today will come into government, serve for five or ten years, and then go do something else. So this will never actually come onto their radar screen in a personal sense. So I, I tell young people, don't worry about that. More senior, if you want to be a if you want to be a cabinet officer or a sub cabinet officer. Yeah, at that point in your career, you're going to have to face that reality. And, it's, and it is a reality that's not going away. Uh, but but for most of your career, you're going to be focused on, I think, doing what you signed up to do in the first place and not have to worry about these extraneous things. And, and frankly, in terms of the rules and so on, I don't think that they're any more onerous than you would find in the private sector or a university or any place else.
2: Ah, uh, fair point. Last qu- quick question: uh, You famously said in your memoir, uh, "Duty," uh, back in two thousand fourteen, that Joe Biden, uh, I think your phrase was, had been wrong on nearly every major issue. Um, so I want to ask you: that, You wrote that a while ago. How do you think he's doing as president? What would you say about his actual performance?
3: Well, I would say it's mixed, David. I I, I applaud his continuation of the emphasis on the Quad. Uh, in terms of Asia strategy, the relationship with India, uh, Australia, and, and Japan, I think that's very important. I think that the move with the, with um, uh, Australia in terms of the nuclear submarines is a is a very strong long term strategic uh, uh, plus. I, I think that was a good decision. I think uh, maintaining the, the tough line on both Russia and China uh, has, has been the right thing to do. Uh, I think Afghanistan was, uh, was poorly handled, uh, to, uh, to put it mildly, uh, I th- I, the exit from Afghanistan. I think that the diplomacy surrounding the Australian uh, submarine deal was unfortunate and probably was an unforced error we we could have probably done that in a way that uh, didn't offend the uh, uh, the French so deeply. Uh, I think that the the rhetoric of the administration toward our allies and, and reinforcing the notion that our alliances matter and that this is a huge advantage for the United States is important. But from the allies standpoint, it's also important that your actions match your words and, uh, and the way that the Australian uh, sub deal was handled, the way that the Afghan um, evacuation was handled, I think left a lot of our allies uh, feeling like, the rhetoric may have changed, but, but the basic policy decision-making hasn't. So I think it's a mixed record. Um, I think that there, you know, I think the key, one of the key things going forward uh, is going to be uh, the China strategy and getting that out and having it be a comprehensive strategy that isn't just military, but is also economic and focuses on strategic communications and all the other instruments of power. So, Mr. Secretary, it's always great to have a chance to talk to you, um,
2: get uh, straight up answers to questions. So thank you so much for coming and joining us today on Washington Post Live. I'll be back in a moment, uh, actually a few moments, to continue the program with the director of DARPA, Dr. Stephanie Tompkins. Please stay with us.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
1: Hello, I'm Jean Reserve. The federal workforce can be underappreciated and unsung and it is facing some challenges, some of which may not be obvious to the public. Here with me to discuss is Shane Canfield, CEO of WAPA. We celebrated Veterans Day last week. I understand that holiday has special significance for your organization.
4: Yes, great to be here. Uh, It does have special meaning. Um, Veterans Day is to honor those who served in the armed forces. Uh, And we were formed not of armed forces, but civilian feds uh, serving uh, the country overseas in war zones. War zones were uh, excluded from life insurance policies at the time. The Federal Employee Benefits Program did not exist in 1943. And uh, that came on uh, online in 1954, so they couldn't get life insurance. President Roosevelt saw this and said, we have got to be able to provide a way for our nearly 30,000 civilian feds in the European uh, theater and across the world with life insurance. That's the genesis of WEPA. It it was formed to serve civilian feds, and yes, they serve uh, as well.
1: Service is a word we usually associate with the armed forces. Is it an appropriate word to use for the civilian workforce as well?
4: Absolutely. Um, My uh, father's generation was inspired uh, deeply by JFK. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And that single concept of service, I saw with my own eyes as a child, but I saw it, and I think all of us did who uh, were around that era, Tens of thousands of Americans went to work for the federal government. It's a service-to-country model. How can we renew that high calling to service today? How can we inspire the next generation? We do have um, some challenges. We've got pay and benefits, but we've got the baby boomer generation is, uh, after some delay from COVID, is starting to retire. They are taking their knowledge, their experience, their professional uh, footprint, if you will, um, away. How are we going to get the next generation of civilian feds in place? How are we going to compensate them? How are we going to be competitive? And I think largely, uh, larger than that is how do we instill that service the country uh, mentality? I think, um, I think that needs some work, but we can do it.
1: How many civilian federal employees are there?
4: It's the largest employer uh, in the country, as you might well imagine. There are roughly two million full-time civilian Feds, another three million DoD, six hundred thousand postal workers. Uh, depending on how you count the numbers, that goes up a little bit if you add part-time and seasonal. But uh, it's it's the largest employer by far. Um, they accept and they understand this call to service and this mission that they have, and uh, I'm thrilled that we can serve them.
1: From your vantage point, what does the future of the federal workforce look like?
4: I would like to say that uh, at this point, um, the, the, the administration does have a federal workforce uh, focus. I think that's clear. We've seen that in uh, actions, not just words, but in legislation and changes. Uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of change. And COVID fundamentally changed the notion of work for um, the entire nation. Of course, not just the federal government, but the federal government as well. Uh, How are we going to manage fulfilling the mission, working remotely, working out of the office? There are many different names for this. Uh, But I think that over time, uh, we will solve this. But the nature of the mission hasn't changed. I know federal employees still want to deliver on their promises to the American people, and they will.
1: Leadership is critical, critical of course. How have you been leading your organization through the pandemic? Uh,
4: as a life insurance uh, organization, uh, we're a nonprofit, but we still have uh, the, the, the actuarial and the financial Model that a for profit insurance company would have. Uh, We're designed for catastrophic losses. We stress test our business regularly. We make sure we're, in our case, extremely well reserved to be able to handle it. Um, We're making financial commitments to pay claims 10, 20, 30 years from now. We have to get it right, and we do. So we uh, made it through uh, the pandemic uh, quite, quite well. Of course, that's a horrible event, but. This is the business that we're in, to make sure that we're there to pay claims, and, and we, we did just that.
1: Shane Canfield, CEO of WakeUp. thanks so much for joining us.
0: And now, back to Washington Post Live.
2: Hello, for those of you just joining us, I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Washington Post. I wanna continue our program with the director of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, Dr. Stephanie Tompkins, welcome to Washington Post Live, Dr. Tompkins.
0: Thank you so much, it's a pleasure to be here.
2: So to resume the discussion that I was having with Bob Gates about public service, let me ask you about your own story. You were born in South Korea where your dad was a U.S. Army officer. You graduated from Princeton with a degree in geology and geophysics. Then you went into the Army as an intelligence officer through that, uh, there's a, a line to your president's job of a, a commitment to public service. Explain where that came from. Why were you motivated to, to work for, for this country?
0: Well, I think it, it does naturally fall from that start that you mentioned, which is that I come from a military family. Um, and so I also lived overseas for a good chunk of my childhood. And so you have a really interesting perspective on the role of the united states um, in the world and the fact that the the people who serve the government are ultimately serving the nation and and um, hopefully benefiting you know the world as a whole but it, it's always been um a, a pretty natural fit from that perspective later on i did have an opportunity to work for about a decade in industry um, before i first came to darpa and i think one of the things that struck me is that while i loved the fascination and, and some of the interesting science challenges of working in industry, you feel much more empowered to make a difference um, in, in certainly in DARPA um, and in public service, I hope in general. And so for me, it's been a little bit addictive. So Dr. Tompkins, DARPA
2: lives off brain power as much as any part of the U.S. government. Tell us some of the ways that you're t- trying to stimulate the creative thinking that DARPA needs. I know you've wanted to bring to DARPA a little bit of the startup culture that's been so successful uh, in our technology industry. Tell us how you're trying to do that.
0: Well, I should start by saying that DARPA is a really extraordinary organization to begin with. So this is an organization that is somewhat director proof in the fact that its culture very much because of the authorities we have and because of the fairly rapid turnover rate we have among people so that nobody has a chance to, um, you know, kind of embed them, permanently embed themselves and, and you know, build walls um, Is is something that is already Um, incredibly precious. And so a big part of my job is to make sure that we keep that, but at the same time that we keep up with changing technology, with changing demographics and populations and people and things like that. So, you know, an example of one of the things that I'm doing, and I have to say, ironically, it's somewhat enabled by COVID, is looking much more at allowing um, DARPA program managers. These are our, our technologists who create and execute on new technology ideas. Um, to work remotely, um, potentially as, as for the majority of their DARPA career. So we we are based in Washington D.C. and we've historically said um, DARPA is sufficiently amazing that you should be willing to drop everything and bring your family to Washington for four years. And at the end of four years, we will kick you out. But um, that that should be more than worth it. And I think one of the things we've recognized is that. Uh, no matter how amazing we are, and we're asking people to give up a whole lot, um, particularly when they're trying to balance um, family and and other kinds of priorities. So um, we've had a lot of experience in the last year and a half that's allowed us to experiment with people working remotely, and we are. Um, I, I you know I should say by the way I realize. This may not seem radical to a lot of other places, but for us, and particularly for an organization that has really lived off of this culture of people bouncing ideas off of each other um, you know spontaneously, it's it's a pretty big move. But it's definitely one that that we think will help us keep up and allow us to recruit um, amazing people that we might have missed before.
2: People sometimes, uh, Dr. Tompkins, c- criticize what they call a revolving door between uh, government uh, and pr- private industry. If I'm hearing you right, you, you're arguing that there's a benefit to moving back and forth between government and, and industry. Am I, am I understanding that right?
0: Yes, there absolutely is. Um, and I, you know, I will caveat that by saying I'm going to focus very much on DARPA. Um, We are technologists and part of, I think what uh, most people realize is that technology moves very quickly. And also we are an organization that prides itself on being very, very risk tolerant. And I think one of the things that can be the enemy of tolerating risk is being in one place for too long. So we bring people in. Um, they stay for a tenure that is typically around four years, and then they go back out either to a new job or to, you know, back to where they, they were before. Um, that means we're always getting a refresh on ideas. It means that nobody comes in and says, well, that can't be done because we tried that 10 years ago and it didn't work. Um, so that part is really essential to us. Now to, to, to address some of the questions about the revolving door, um, we have an incredibly effective and very strong ethics policy. We try to make sure um, everyone who comes here understands the underlying reasons why um, some of those perceived negatives of people going out and then maybe taking advantage or or unethically using their government connections um, in the private sector would be highly inappropriate and sort of toxic to our ability to do our mission. I think all of our program managers are committed to that, but we also have access for them, you know usually with about a 10-minute response um, from any um, of our ethics um, folks to provide them direct advice on any question they may have. So you're not left in doubt as to whether um, what the appropriate path might be when you're facing a question, say, about a, post, a post-DARPA employment opportunity or about whether or not you might want to interview with somebody while you're still at DARPA. So we have lots of help, um, and I think it's worked really well.
2: One of the fun things about DARPA are the competitions that DARPA sponsors, uh, robotics competitions. I just was reading about a new underground, uh, I gather, robotics competition you're sponsoring, driverless vehicles. So just tell us a little bit about about that part of, of how DARPA tries to encourage innovation and ideas out there.
0: Oh, those are so much fun. When I first came to DARPA um, as a program manager years and years ago, I came just a couple of months before the Urban Challenge, which was the third in a series of unmanned vehicle challenges. Um, It brings this incredible global community together all into one place at one time. Um, and so it's it's a little bit of the opposite of what I was just talking about, about how we're learning to be able to work more remotely and be effective. Sometimes you just sort of need everything together at once. And you know, DARPA starts, I'm gonna say on the average of about 50 new technology programs um, per year. Most of those we do by, you know, putting out a solicitation and reading proposals and then, you know, funding specific teams to do work for us. But sometimes you have a problem that is just so big and where the solution space is so broad that you need to reach out to the world. And so things like um, driverless cars or robotics, those are the kinds of things where you don't wanna just limit it to a handful of pre-selected teams to do the work. You wanna throw out a crazy hard question and you wanna put some some prize money there at the end that will motivate people. Although I admit that you know I hear from our teams all the time on these prizes that it's not the money they're going for. It's just the opportunity to solve the problem and and, and the chance to make that difference. Um, But we end up with solutions that are just much more creative than we would have gotten otherwise. And um, a lot of those things I think you'll see after that third driverless car competition, most of the people who were on the winning teams were almost immediately snapped up by companies like Google. And we were able to then see the, the DARPA national security focus start to permeate out into um, the commercial world fairly quickly as well.
2: I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about these uh, unconventional uh, things that 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 DARPA does. Um, I just was reading uh, before our conversation a, a list in military times about unlikely DARPA projects, and they included plant-eating robots, houses that repair themselves, cyborg insects, I mean, it's stuff that's just fun to read about. But there's a number of uh, programs that you're working on that deal directly with issues uh, involving the threats to our climate, so fundamental uh, issues that the, the planet as a whole is concerned with don't fit the usual national security uh, description. Maybe you could talk about, about a few of those that you think are especially uh, interesting for, for folks that they ought to know about DARPA.
0: Well, sure. There are a number of things that, um, well, first, you know, we tend to take a pretty hard look at everything we do. They may not fit what the world might typically think of as being sort of military. Our, our remit is really focused on national security, and we put a pretty hard lens on, on whether what we're doing is national security focused. Um, one example that um, has probably been been in the news um, a fair amount has to do with the mRNA vaccines, which um, were pretty fundamental to the rapid vaccine production for the COVID-19 pandemic. That is something that DARPA, DARPA made seminal investments into of over a decade ago. Um, and you can say, well, DARPA's responsibility is not public health and pandemics, and it's not. And we didn't do it for public and health and pandemics so much as we did it for the fact that military Um, warfighters have to deploy all over the world, often to places where they're facing some pretty strange diseases for which we don't have vaccines. And the traditional process of finding and and fabricating and manufacturing vaccines just didn't make any sense. So we had a DARPA program manager who came in and said, here are some really crazy things that could, could accelerate that process much, much more. So we could actually turn vaccines around in you know, in days rather than in years in order to protect the warfighters. And oh, by the way, there could be a side benefit should there ever be some type of global pandemic. And, you know, we said, oh, that's kind of interesting, but let's get back to the warfighter part. And that led to, you know, significant investments. Um, in companies like Moderna and the acceleration of vaccines for Operation Warp Speed. So we do a lot of things in supply chains, again, so so medical um, supply chains in, in being able to make and manufacture things um, in the field, which ultimately can come back and feed back into what seem like more civil economic benefits, but they are really all starting off with a military problem that we have to try to figure out how to solve. and. Um, we have the remit to be able to do as disruptive and crazy a set of ideas as we can if we think it's going to make a difference
2: one of the things that is a a puzzle for military for national security but also for anybody who follows technology is quantum computing Uh, and i'm very curious what you from your seat uh, atop this uh, organization think about how soon um usable quantum computers, programmable quantum computers will be available to do meaningful work. Is that three years off, five years off, a year off? What's what's your best uh, guess about that?
0: (laughs) That is a great question and very timely because the answer is we don't know, um, but we have started a program to help us understand that better. So I think it might come as a surprise to a lot of people listening that there actually is no proof, proof at all that outside of encryption, and encryption is a really important area, but outside of the space of encryption, that there that there will be a useful, usable uh, quantum computer that can solve you know any of these other problems. There are there's lots and lots of potential, um, but nothing is actually demonstrably proven. And so, um, one of the things we just created is a program called quantum benchmarking which is specifically challenge the, challenging the community to help us come up with the metrics and the testing techniques that we would need to be able to compare um, and make these kinds of predictions about quantum computing. So um, you're right, there's a lot of clutter um, in, the, in the talk about quantum computing. And one of the things that DARPA can do really well Um, Is to take a step back and say, you know, one of the real problems and why there's so much clutter is that we are not able to compare, you know, apples to apples, and we simply don't know exactly what the right metrics are. And so we're we're going to try to figure that out. Ask me again in a couple of years, and we might have a much better answer for you.
2: Uh, Deal. I I I I, I will. And that's a that's a useful. The idea of having a benchmark uh, will be valuable to everybody. So when we talk about technology competition in national security these days, we talk about China, uh, which is a a near peer competitor of a sort that the United States really has never had uh, in modern times. Curious what you think, again, from your perspective running DARPA uh, about uh, whether we're still in the lead uh, in technology vis-a-vis China and whether you're concerned in any particular areas about the United States losing that lead.
0: You know, technology is really complex. And so even in a specific discipline, um, for example, say quantum, you're gonna find subdisciplines and sort of sub-subdisciplines. And in any one of those, um, I I believe that there are some in which China is doing much better than we are, and there are others in which we are doing much better than they are, in the sense of advancement. Better is probably a terrible word to use. It's simply of who is moving faster and who is farther ahead. Um, yes, I do think there are areas where we, we have lost ground. Um, I think there are a lot of areas in which the U.S. continues to maintain um, the lead. And we're, we're we're focusing really hard on the kinds of things that we would need to do to excite more people um, to thinking about um, sort of contributing to the, that mission of, of um, technological excellence and global leadership.
2: I just want to ask you, what, what are the areas that you think we are losing the lead, uh, as you mentioned.
0: Um, there are there are some aspects you've you've heard people talk about things like um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. There again, there are certain aspects of AI and machine learning in which I think um, China has been able to move forward more quickly. Um, I think that in any area, particularly where you have, you know, a heavy government focus um, on on certain technologies that. Uh, um, they have they have been able to make strides much more quickly. Um, it's also much more focused and, and in some ways easier to see. If you think about it, you know the U.S. Um, technology, science and technology landscape is really distributed, and it's it's across hundreds of research universities, small companies, large companies, as well as government and nonprofit research. And so it's often a little bit harder. To be able to pull that focus together, and some of the kinds of things that we're we might be working on are things that don't always get advertised. So, it I I don't think there's a good way to give you um, a quantitative comparison, except to say that you know there are certainly fields that that we're paying close attention to. So, a
2: last uh, c- a question, uh, Dr. T- Dr. Tompkins.
0: Uh,
2: Out there in the technology world, there are uh, many young software engineers who are wary of working uh, for the U.S. government, in particular, are wary of working on defense projects. We saw that uh, with Google resistance to Project Maven a few years ago. What would be your simple answer if you were to just give a 60-second response to the young engineers who says, "I, I think technology should be for the world, not for the Defense Department? How would you answer that?
0: I would say that technology um, absolutely should be for the world. And I would say that most of or many of the seminal technologies um, that have launched whole technological industries came originally from the US government. There are areas of technological advancement that it simply doesn't make sense for industry to invest in. They Sometimes they are at the seams of different in- industries or sometimes they are pushing hard enough be- beyond where the business model might work in order to create entirely new capabilities. So for computer scientists, I would advise them to take a good hard look at history and look at the origins of their discipline and look at how many of the, of the sort of the technologies um, that, that form their entire industry came from US government investments. Um, I think it would be a shockingly large amount. And um, we have done, you know, you've probably seen different organizations do things where they look at devices like the iPhone or laptop computers and start sh- showing all of the different items that came out of, um, not just US government, but primarily DOD investments and those do translate to the benefit of the world. So um, this is how you make that difference on reaching beyond just what is sort of the next couple of years worth of technology. If you want to affect the next decade, um, that's something that you can do through the government.
2: Dr. Stephanie Tompkins, Director of DARPA, thank you so much for joining us for a rich conversation. We hope you'll come back and join us again on Watch Post
4: Live.
0: Thanks so much for having me.